0: Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your editor in chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Vesna Petronik rosich for Dialogues in Dermatology. Welcome to the first of quarterly interviews with the JAD International founding editor, Dr. Cantor, discussing some of the articles featured for each issue. Dr. Jonathan Cantor is an adjunct assistant professor of dermatology at the Perlman School of Medicine and editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology International. Dr. Cantor, welcome. It is such a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm really excited to get these going, and I am so, so excited to be involved in dialogues again, and it's really exciting for me to be involved in dialogues kind of on the other end of the microphone, so thank you again.
1: I'm sure it's fun for me too, but I'm sure it's a different kind of joy to be the one being interviewed. Would you please share the story of how JAD International came to be and your purpose in establishing this open access platform for the world to enjoy?
0: Sure. So it was many years ago now that there was a realization among the academy leadership that a lot of articles are being submitted to the JAD, a lot of fantastic articles with fantastic science and with really powerful and important messages and that were well-performed, but that just didn't necessarily resonate with the primary readership of the JAD, which has traditionally been you know, the North American readership. And so one of the steps that was taken, and this was a many, many year process uh, to get there, was to kind of look at what are the options out there in terms of being able to say, How do we get this information out there? How do we provide a platform for a lot of this really fantastic science that's coming in from around the world, also from the United States, but that's coming in from around the world? What do we do to be able to really kind of have that manifest and give an opportunity for those scientists to really share their knowledge and share the important developments? And so ultimately the decision was made to start a new journal, JAD International, and the idea was to focus really on providing this platform, providing a way to share great science, great data that really could be in the JAD, but that of course there are just limitations to how much can be included in there. And that might not be necessarily a primary interest from a subject matter perspective or from a regional perspective or from any other reason to the traditionally forecast audience for the JAD. And The next thing that was done was to say, well, listen, there's another push going on around the world, which is this push toward open access journals. And it's something that's happening really more outside, I would say, outside of dermatology and outside of the US, where a lot of funding bodies, for example, are expecting their research to be published open access. Uh, I think traditionally, we kind of think of open access in the U.S. as being something which is onerous from from an author's standpoint, right? That you have to pay publishing fees to get it out there. I think the way some of the funding bodies think about it is that if they're going to be funding research, they want that research to be available to anyone in the world at any time without a paywall. And that's why there's been a push globally towards open access. It's not that open access is being done as a moneymaker. I would argue probably that if anything, there is probably less revenue coming in because of the lack of advertising, et cetera. But I think it's really done in the name of really kind of trying to democratize science while realizing that that is democratizing it on the consumer end. And that does put a little bit more of a burden on those producing the science. And that's why we really worked hard to make sure that nobody who wants to publish great science in JAD International is turned away because of cost.
1: That's excellent to know. And I'm sure that many authors from abroad appreciate having this platform because they're able to publish their work in such a reputable journal. With that said, today we'll be discussing management of vitiligo with topical JAD inhibitor therapy and evidence-based review by Dr. Jung and colleagues from Toronto, Canada. So can you please tell us why you chose this article for this month in JAD International?
0: Sure. I mean, it certainly wasn't because Toronto is such an exotic locale for a internationally oriented paper to be coming in from. But, you know, I think one of the interesting things that this, this paper captures, and this is, by the way, a short research letter. This is not a long paper. But one of the interesting things that this work really captures nicely is this emphasis on uh, vitiligo, on a disease that really has manifestations that go well, well, well beyond what people just think about typically. I think for close readers of JAD International, they probably noticed that there is a bit of a stress looking at papers that go beyond that kind of two-dimensional skin disease problem saying, okay, well, you know, it's just quote unquote, just an aesthetic problem, just a cosmetic problem, and really trying to look at impact on quality of life and try to look at impacts on how it affects people's functioning in the world. And so because of that, I thought it was important to think about. I also think that it's important to stress articles that are looking at novel ways of treating diseases that can be very stubborn to treat, and for which we don't have a lot of options out there. And I think it's important for us to really kind of try to think outside the box, and look at new ways and new approaches to treating things, because I think only in that way can we really make a difference. And you know, again, vitiligo is something which is such a worldwide phenomenon. And if anything, I think I would argue that vitiligo is a disease that plays a more important role outside of the United States than inside the United States, if we think about the global burden of disease. So thinking about burden of disease and what it really means to have a burden of disease in terms of those psychological functioning, social functioning you know, considerations, I think it's just really a fantastic subject to focus on.
1: I couldn't agree with you more vitiligo has been neglected not from the scientific viewpoint but from the point of addressing the life of the patient and the quality of life they they lead and and the stigma that is often associated with it especially outside of north america as you mentioned you know i really do think i started practicing about 20 years ago and I feel so very fortunate to practice at a time when so many new medications became available for treatment of autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, which are what makes my heart jump when I practice. And we have numerous biologics crowding the market. However, vitiligo seems to be somewhat lagging in that regard. Do you believe JAK inhibitors will change that?
0: I think it's early to say whether definitively going along with topical JAK inhibitors is going to be a game changer for vitiligo. I think what this research is doing is it's highlighting the importance and, of course, highlighting the value and the potential here. And, of course, topokitinib is is approved, uh, of course, for vitiligo by the FDA. So it's not that this is the first in human description, but I think it's important to highlight that, you know, Hopefully, what we're doing is we're cracking open a door here, as you mentioned, into. A in many ways neglected disease. I mean, I would say that vitiligo is probably where hydratinitis is was 15 years ago, right? 15 years ago we had tons of biologics for psoriasis, or at least we were starting to have tons of biologics for psoriasis. And then you know, a few brave souls start to think about hydratinitis. And I think there was a lot of pushback with people saying, What do you mean hydratinitis is a rare disease? What's really the burden of disease? We really don't see so much of it. And I think again, what we've seen in the past decade and a half is how wrong that approach was. And so You know, hopefully what this is, what we're seeing is a harbinger of things to come with more attention paid to vitiligo and more attention paid to our potential to really result in some significant disease modulation so that we're not just trying to tamp things down a little bit and trying to get things a little bit better, but so that we're looking at potentially therapies in the future uh, that can really address the underlying cause of some of these really, really tough, challenging autoimmune processes.
1: So I'm going to ask you a question that I don't know if you're, well, actually, I look forward to your thoughtful answer, and I'll make a little bit of a parallel. So I see some hesitancy to use oral check inhibitors due to their black box warning and side effect profile, and I'm sort of a little afraid that because it sort of gets transferred to the topicals without much distinction that it will really stop people from using it. And the parallel I want to draw is to topical calcineurin inhibitors, which when they came out, the one that was used systemically was the and then it got the black box warning. And then we accepted that it didn't have the side effects, but then there was this huge blowback from pharmacy and from patients, which I think influenced a lot of prescribers and made them, Stop prescribing it quite as much because it was such an uphill battle. And now I see the opposite. And I wonder whether that that had to do anything with it. Now I see people with like, oh, there's a black box warning. You know, I don't even want to deal with it. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, anytime you get a black box warning, I think it definitely increases the complexity, it increases the activation energy needed to have a patient use a medication have their primary care doctor on board with it, to have any other medical providers on board with it. And I think your comparison to the calcineurin inhibitors is spot on. I too remember when calcineurin inhibitors first came out and the many, many discussions I had, particularly with patients of kids, where I would say, listen, I'm a dad myself, and the reason this black box warning is there was A, from systemic use, and B, if you apply it to 80% of the BSA on an infant, you're gonna get systemic absorption, but the degree of systemic absorption you're gonna get from applying it to a small area is gonna be so minuscule, you're not really gonna have much, and it's, you know, it's okay, I would use it on my children. So I think you're right. There is definitely a, a, a real parallel there I think the one advantage that I think we are looking at here is that, number one, vitiligo, I think when we used acrolimus in the beginning topically, and when we were using pimecrolimus in the beginning topically, we were predominantly, at least, unless we were doing it on the face, we're predominantly using it in a pediatric population where there's even more of a wariness um, to use medications in general, and certainly something with black box warning. I think with vitiligo, of course, we've got that bimodal age distribution, so there's certainly plenty of kids With vitiligo, but there are also a lot of adults with vitiligo, particularly when it's recalcitrant. And so I think the degree of motivation that we're going to see for treating vitiligo, I think, is going to be greater so that it's going to be a little bit less challenging to overcome that That said, I do agree that anytime you've got a black box warning from the FDA, and rightly so, people are going to be wary and they're going to be concerned and they're going to say, hey, let's make sure we have these discussions. And I think that's part of our role as dermatologists, right? That's part of our role as the experts in skin disease and skin therapy is to take that time, whether it's educating our patients or educating our colleagues in other specialties, to say, listen, let's look at absorption data. Let's look at uh, what percent body surface area people are using this on. And let's have an intelligence discussion based on that and really move forward from there. So I think it does increase the burden on the dermatologist in terms of management when you have that. That said, I think that vitiligo, I think we all know that vitiligo is something where it can be so crushing socially and psychologically that people are going to be very, very motivated to consider it, particularly if we can explain that those black box warnings really are more geared towards systemic usage.
1: Very good. And I agree with everything. I do think education is crucial and spending that time to uh, explain all the important parts to the patient makes all the difference. I'm going to pivot a little bit to discussing a different aspect of this publication, which has more to do with the type of research that was done. So I noticed that the authors started their research with 240 studies from Medline and Embase databases, but ended up only including 12 in their paper. What does that say to you regarding the utility of published data for analysis?
0: Yeah, you know, so it's an interesting phenomenon that you'll see when you're looking at systematic reviews, and particularly when you're looking at systematic reviews or evidence-based reviews or meta-analyses that are well done with really great. Search strategies that they're going to capture a very broad swath of the literature, and that that's going to be winnowed down very dramatically. To me, it's not typically a red flag to see that. I would actually argue that to me it's a red flag to see somebody start with 22 studies and end up with 14, because that suggests to me that their search strategy was insufficiently broad. As an epidemiologist, I always like to think of approaching things in this way as you want to make sure you're capturing as much as possible. You're not worried about falsely including extra studies in that initial search because that's your job to go through them and to, to window them out. So I don't think we can draw conclusions regarding the quality of published research in general, based on those keywords, because it may just be that a lot of these studies that they were looking at that flagged with those words, they weren't excluded due to quality. They were excluded, let's say, because vitiligo wasn't really the thing they were studying, or they didn't have standardized endpoints that they could use, or there was a separate focus or, you know, all these other issues. So I wouldn't necessarily jump to drawing conclusions regarding the literature. Uh, I do think there are always... Uh, challenges in the published literature and there's certainly concerns regarding bias etc when you're looking at what's published but I don't know that seeing a large number of initially included studies that's then winnowed down drastically I don't know that I would see that as a negative if anything to me that's a sign that they probably did a pretty thorough literature review in the first place.
1: Well I'm really glad I asked this question because this happens a lot in the published literature and now our listeners will be able to look at it from the point of, well, that just means that it's better quality than it might have been if there were more studies, potentially, rather than thinking of it as a negative. So the included studies, the ones they did end up using for their paper, were there any drawbacks to those that you thought were important to point out?
0: Yeah, I think the important principle, and again, this is sort of the epidemiology 101, right? Or life 101 is garbage in garbage out. And so any study that is trying to like, you know, perform, whether it's a formal meta analysis, or whether it's an evidence based review, or even if it's a narrative review, any study that's looking at the literature, you are always hamstrung, the highest quality you could ever get really, is based on the quality of the studies going in. And so if you have problems with the studies that you're including, you know, you may be able to dilute out some of those problems a little bit by including enough studies, but you cannot actually assume that that will work out because that would assume that one study erred in one way, the other study erred in exactly the opposite way. So it balances out to zero. That's not really the way life works. So, you know, a number of these studies certainly had issues and they're very, very fundamental in terms of drawing conclusions regarding efficacy here. I would argue that one of the important things that's super critical and very critical for listeners to think about when they're reading any study, but any study particularly that's not a formal randomized controlled trial is that what was the treatment, right? Was it only that a topical JAK inhibitor was used or other things being used? And many of the studies included here, 39, I believe, of the cases that were actually included in this evidence-based review. So a total of, you know, 39 out of what, 213, right? So a significant percentage were concomitantly treated with other therapies. So they were using phototherapy, they were using topical steroids, et cetera. Well, wait a minute. If people are also using phototherapy or they're also using topical steroids, how do you know that if they saw improvement, it had anything at all to do with the JAK inhibitors? So I think it's really important to kind of keep that in mind, that these are studies where patients were treated with JAK inhibitors, but they weren't randomized controlled trials. And they weren't even necessarily all formal studies where they, you know, were excluded if they were on other therapies. And so we don't necessarily know that it was the Jack inhibitor that caused the improvement. Maybe it was, obviously, maybe it was time, right? Regression to the mean, right. but maybe it was the phototherapy. Maybe it was topical corticosteroids. And that's, to me, the number one thing to keep in mind. Other potential things to kind of keep in mind here is that you're always going to have some selection bias. First of all, in terms of what's published, you touched on this by asking about the published literature. Well, the problem is publication bias is a huge issue. A lot of groups have tried to address this, but it is a very, very difficult thing to address. And I will say it's difficult to address even as an author, because when you have a study that shows lack of efficacy, that shows a negative outcome, it is much harder to get that study published in the literature because it's not sexy to say, I tried this and it didn't work. No one wants to hear that, right? People want the thing that's going to make the big flashy headline to show that it did work and that it did make a difference. And so I think selection bias in, you know, in general, and I think publication bias is very important. Another thing that's important to consider are what are the outcome measures that are used? This evidence-based review looked at a couple of different outcome measures. But again, if we're not standardizing the outcomes that we're looking at, just like if we're not standardizing the therapy then how do we really know what it means to have an outcome that is positive, that is what we want to happen? It makes it very, very, very challenging. So I think there are a number of issues that come into play there. Those are just a few of them. And so it's always important to read the literature openly and read as much as possible, but also to read with a critical eye and realize that uh, there are very few studies out there that don't have shortcomings. And if a study does not declare its limitations, That in itself should be a major limitation. To me, the greatest limitation of a study, uh, I've never rejected a paper from JAD International because they had a lot of limitations. I have, however, had concerns about papers where they don't talk about their limitations. So I think that frankness about what the limitations are of your research is so important. And thank you for raising that issue.
1: You're most welcome. Now that we talked about why certain things get published more and others less, It is interesting to me that ruxolitinib was the most common therapy in all the studies that they used. 84% of the studies were on ruxolitinib, followed by tofacitinib with only 15% and delgocitinib only 1%. What does that say to you? I know ruxolitinib is now, hopefully we all know ruxolitinib is now approved in the U.S. for the treatment of vitiligo, but it turns out that their review found tofacitinib to be more effective. And these are my conclusions. These are not their conclusions. I'm just thinking through this, like why was everybody studying ruxolitinib and not tofacitinib
0: as much? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think when we look at issues like that, like which particular drug was studied, for example, I think a lot of what we're seeing does relate to that publication bias. It could be something as simple as which drug companies were more motivated to Uh, sponsor research in one area or another, Were these investigator-initiated trials and the particular investigators um, happened to have a closer relationship with one company over another, and therefore that company was willing to sponsor them and that company happened to make ruxolitinib, right? You know, it's really hard to draw conclusions based on those choices. It does suggest the value and the importance of sort of methodological studies that go back, just like we have bibliometric studies that go and kind of look at, well, who's publishing what? And let's like look at the literature. I think there is a value in taking similar approaches in looking at what is going on with drugs and what's going on with, is it that these drug companies are investing more? Is it that they have particular relationships with certain investigators who are publishing a lot of their work whereas other investigators aren't? Is it that, for example, there's another drug out there, you know, schmuxolitinib, that doesn't work at all. And they've actually done 300 studies looking at it from vitiligo because it didn't work at all. They've never published any of them. And that's where the challenge comes in, right? In terms of knowing, even though we're living in this day and age, we feel like we're seeing science as it is in a way The consumer of the scientific literature is like an archeologist. We're just seeing what was left over, right? We're like a paleontologist. It doesn't mean that there weren't other things besides T-Rexes, but if the T-Rex had eaten everything else and the T-Rex is much bigger, we're gonna find the the T-Rex fossil. And we're not gonna find the fossil of the tiny Rex because let's say it was smaller. Let's say it's bones happen to break down faster. Right, So there are all these residual effects that we're seeing that may have absolutely nothing to do with the individual efficacy of one drug over another and may have much more to do with sort of what's going on in the background and that that's why what we're seeing is this kind of residual leftover fossilized effect uh, when we're reading the literature.
1: Which is why it's so important to read everything with an open mind and, and have these considerations be there when you make decisions regarding the research that you've read and utilize them for patient care. So we talked about the various biases that affect evidence-based reviews. What can you suggest to overcome these biases?
0: I wish I had a magic bullet, like an anti-bias bullet that we could put in everybody's scientific epidemiological uh, armamentarium and, and fire it away. Unfortunately, to me, the best approach to dealing with biases, number one, is to identify them and be aware of them. So doing what you're doing here so brilliantly, where you're really drilling down and highlighting the biases and highlighting not only the biases in this particular study, but the biases in the underlying literature, I think that is such a valuable enterprise. Because what it does is it makes you, again, as you mentioned, it makes you read things with an open mind. It makes you also realize that, you know, it's not always as simple as what's right in front of your eyes. And I think that's really important. We're living in an era where people are questioning probably more than ever received wisdom, where they're questioning questioning fake news, right? And so certainly I think with science, and we've seen the past few years with COVID, there's more than one way to interpret things. And so I think it's really important to make sure you keep an open mind. I think having a basic fundamental feel for it, and that means not just being able to answer multiple choice questions on an exam, but having a really intuitive feel for understanding fundamental biases in the medical and scientific literature, I think is so valuable. I think more and more medical schools are stressing this with medical students. I think more and more residency programs are stressing this with trainees because this is a lifelong skill that's going to help you really understand things. I mean, hopefully the days of people learning about medications from a drug rep coming to their office and telling them about the medication, I'm, I'm hoping those are long gone because again, there is much, much more out there and there is a much more nuanced world of science out there that's important. And I think understanding that there are always going to be challenges that you've got to look at the heterogeneity of the data involved. You've got to look at how much follow-up was used. You've got to look at outcome measures. You've got to look at publication bias. You've got to look at a litany of other biases as well. I think having that appreciation, that understanding, and then actively reading the literature. And what I mean by that is I don't mean you have to drill down into every line of every you know 2,500-word paper. But even if you're just reading abstracts, make sure that you are understanding those limitations and that you have a nuanced view of those limitations and that you're actively reading, actively questioning and engaging with the literature. Makes it much, much more fun and makes it much more rewarding and also means that what you're learning and what you're reading about is going to be much more actionable and has a much higher likelihood of reflecting reality as well.
1: You have such an inspirational way of saying those things that I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this podcast will read their studies with a different point of view going forward. And I can't thank you enough for that. With that in mind, and how the world of science and the world of dermatology and medicine is changing as we speak every day. How does this topic relate to the academy's diversity, equity,
0: and inclusion plan? I think the most obvious way that this really relates to the DEI approach by the academy is that you know vitiligo, and we've mentioned this, and it's sort of you know intuitively obvious to dermatologists. Vitiligo is a problem that is particularly profound outside of the United States. It's particularly profound in people with skin of color, in part because of just on a pragmatic level, if you've got somebody who's got type 1 skin and they have some patches of vitiligo, it might not be as noticeable and in part because of you know the importance of skin color and skin tone in different societies and different parts of the world. So I think the very fact that this study is looking at vitiligo, which to me is a disease which really disproportionately affects on a pragmatic level. I don't mean disproportionately affects, you know, epidemiologically, but disproportionately affects in terms of quality of life. Those with skin of color, I think really helps to play into it. I think the other thing we have to keep in mind though, right, is the other end, which is we're talking about topical jack inhibitors. These things are not, you know, $4 at your local Walmart. And so I don't think anybody is distributing topical jack inhibitors in sub-Saharan Africa anytime soon for free or for an amount of money that many of the people there who are earning, unfortunately, so little are going to be able to afford. And I think that is an elephant in the room when we're looking at new therapies, is to say, what do we do about access to these new therapies? How do we think about access to therapies? How do we think about drug pricing in general? What are the right ways we should be doing this? Uh, Are there ways that are better than others? And I think those are all things that need to have open discussion. It's sort of like what I said about limitations with epidemiological studies, same issue here. I think you need to have an openness to saying, hey, elephant in the room is if you're having trouble affording food for your family, you're unlikely to be able to go and pay cash for a topical jack inhibitor. So I think it's important to keep that in mind and to have that as a subject for discussion going forward, because I think it's something where only by discussing it and only by being open and frank about it, can we have any hope of improvement.
1: Absolutely. And that is such an uncomfortable topic, which really needs to be worked on systematically in order for us to get anywhere. You know, I work at at a county hospital. And unfortunately, many of these medications don't make it on the formulary because they're so expensive. And we serve the underrepresented populations, mainly. So they don't have the opportunity to use these medications because it's exactly as you said, and definitely something that needs to be discussed. Well, I could go on forever. I do think we've kind of reached the max of our time, which I'm sorry to say, because this is such an enjoyable interview. I can't thank you enough, Dr. Cantor, for sharing your insights and wisdom with the listeners. And I look forward to our quarterly interviews.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate the real incisiveness and thoughtfulness of your questions and the closeness of your reading as well, because I think what that does is it really serves to highlight how to approach an article, how to read an article. And thank you so much for including me in this. And It was really an honor and a privilege. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts, We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.